Welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for our October 2014 issue of NCT is Nutrition Support Challenges. Sometimes when we're faced with challenges, we have to look for new processes to overcome those challenges and improve our patient care. And that is exactly what our guest did, and she's here to share her results with us. So joining me today is Beth Taylor, Doctor of Clinical Nutrition and Registered Dietitian from Barnes Jewish Hospital and Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Taylor is the lead author of the paper, Improving Enteral Delivery Through the Adoption of the Feed Early Enteral Diet Adequately for Maximum Effect, or the FEED-ME, Protocol in a Surgical Trauma ICU, a Quality Improvement Review. So before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. Taylor if she has any disclosures on this topic that she'd like to share. I don't have any disclosures. I would like to state, I guess, that I received funding from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Practice Group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for a research grant to help complete this study. Thank you, Beth, for joining me today. In your paper in NCP, you described how you identified a problem, you sought a solution, and you implemented the changes. So first, I'd like you to kind of briefly summarize the problem you found, your solution, and then the outcome of your changes for our listeners today. So sure, thanks. I'd like to summarize by just saying that I had looked to the literature and noticed that we need to get about 80% of our patients' caloric and protein goals to give them the most optimal nutritional care that we can. So I wanted to take a look and just see how successful were we doing that in my surgical intensive care unit. So I just took one week audit and looked at what was the percentage of calories and protein of the estimated requirement that I was giving my patients and found that we were only doing 37% of what was recommended, which was pretty dismal. So I set out to see if I could identify what those problems were and if I could come up with a solution that would lead to improved outcome. And that's basically what we did. This was a multidisciplinary approach. And we identify what our barriers were to getting adequate feeds into our patients. And we came up with the FEEPI protocol as a way to overcome those barriers. And we were, in fact, very successful, significantly so, in getting more calories and protein into our patients. Beth, one of the things I wondered about when you did your protocol, was it kind of an all-or-none approach, or were there other options in the FeedMe program? In other words, were all of the patients in your trial fed according to a volume-based approach, or when you were doing this, did you also have the traditional rate-based approach available to use for your patients as well? Well, that's a really good question because we did have a little pushback and some concern by some of our attending surgeons and physicians and intensivists. So what we decided that was a little bit different from the PEPA protocol, and if anyone's not familiar with that, that was the protocol designed by Darren Hyland and his group called PEPA. It was the protein energy provision via the enteral route in critically ill patients, and that's the one I used as sort of a roadmap to develop this protocol they were all comers in that protocol, in his protocol. Because of the concerns of some of our physicians, 
we limited it to only those patients that could be advanced to a goal rate. So if I were going to, using the rate-based protocol, advance someone to goal that the physician had signed off on the fact that they could get more than just, say, trophic feeds, then they were enrolled into the Feed Me protocol. But there was no diagnosis that was used to keep people out of the feed me protocol. So any patient that was approved by the physician for gold tube feeds was enrolled in the feed me protocol. Dr. Taylor, this is kind of a follow-up question. Now that you've been doing this for a while, are there any patient groups now that you exclude from the volume-based feeding protocol or maybe it's like patients who've just undergone GI surgery? Are there any populations that you don't think the feed me protocol is appropriate for? No, there's really not. We have most of our my patients are GI surgery. So if I excluded GI surgery, I would be excluding quite a bit because I'm in a trauma surgical intensive care unit. So it, any patient that we feel like we could feed to goal, now we might practice some permissive hypochloric feeding for the first few days of their stay in the ICU so that goal may be less and then gradually work that goal higher we would still enroll them in the Feed Me protocol. The only group, actually, that we didn't think about initially, and I have to say that you will always uncover things that you didn't think of initially, were those that are difficult for glycemic control. So if we're using an insulin drip on a patient, which we do quite frequently for glycemic control, we still enroll them in the protocol, but we've had to make some adjustments to account for the fact that we kind of make up for lost time, and so we have a higher tube feeding rate than normal, and their insulin needs go up, and then what to do when we revert back to their actual goal rate. So we had to make a few adjustments based on those that have some hyperglycemia issues. I know that you talked about in your paper how you use several different kinds of education tools. You used some didactic sessions, you mentioned individual instruction, bedside tools, and even posters in your intensive care units. So which, if any of those tools, did you find to be the most important or the most helpful in getting this new protocol across to your staff? Can I say all of them? Is that legal? Because really, I have to say education, education, education. I have a very large unit. I have 36 beds in my ICU. I have over 90 nurses. I have over 25 intensivists that work here. We're a teaching hospital, so we have fellows and residents. And so it's constant education. So using the didactic as far as getting the lead charge nurses and the intensivists aware of what's going on was very important. I think one of the most helpful things was having the bedside grid available. So in my article, I have the grid on how a nurse would adjust the tube feeding rate, and we actually have that in color, laminated at every single patient bedside in the drawer so the nurse can pull it out and it's right there for her use. But I have to say that we've had a lot of fun putting up the little reminders on the computers around the unit. One of the secretaries had a good time figuring out little funny pictures that we would use to say feed me protocol because the funnier it can be uh, brings a little chuckle, but it also helps remind people about the protocol. 
I think that's a big shift in paradigm when we feed by volume rather than by rate. So how long do you think it took your staff to kind of adapt to that new paradigm? And what kind of resistance did you receive as you tried to implement that new program? Wouldn't it be great if I could just say, oh, they took to it just right away overnight. But that's really not practical. Change is hard, I think, for everyone. And I actually had to kind of disguise it a little bit. If you look at the grid in my article, instead of saying to a nurse that you have to get in 1,500 mLs of volume into this patient during this day, we adjusted the rate of infusion. So if the goal rate was 60 mLs an hour, but we were making up for lost time, the new goal rate may be 85 mLs an hour until the next morning at 7 a.m. when it would revert back to the prescribed goal rate. And we did that because we did have pushback from my nursing staff about wanting to not calculate. They didn't want to have to get out of calculator and say, okay, I've given 1,200 mLs, I've got 300 more, I've got this many hours, this is my new rate. They wanted it to be just let me look at this chart and go. So we kind of disguised it a little bit. So they're still thinking rate, but I'm thinking volume, and we're working to get the volume increase. So I think sometimes you have to be creative depending on your staff. Some nurses may prefer and some units may prefer to actually calculate um, the amount they have left to infuse and determine what the new rate would be. And it may be, you know, as my unit, they didn't want to do that. So I think there's more than one way that you can be successful. So that's kind of what we did. We did have quite a bit of pushback from the nurses. Now, as far as training and getting used to it, it took about three months, I would have to say, before they really felt like, hey, I'm going to do the Feed Me protocol and I don't need to ask a question. So I would say there was a good three-month time-lapse learning curve for the nursing staff. I like your idea of kind of disguising it using, it's still volume-based, but they're still thinking it's based on rate and you're achieving the same goal. So also, who were the key stakeholders when you made this change? And for other clinicians that are out there wanting to maybe implement a similar program in their facility, who do you recommend that they reach out to to help implement this change in their units? Well, I'm really pretty lucky. We have a quality improvement committee set up for my surgical intensive care unit that is multidisciplinary. So it includes our physician leadership, nursing leadership, respiratory therapy, pharmacists, myself, and even some of our PTs come to that. So when I went about this change, I brought it first to our quality improvement committee and I presented the issue. So I'd done an audit, I found the problem, I came up with what I thought would be a good solution and asked, could I move forward with a multidisciplinary team and come up with a plan? And I got that stamp of approval from that committee. So I had physician and nursing leadership behind me. And then I was very careful to include nurses as a big part of this committee and how it would be done because I'm really counting on the nurses to carry out my plan. They're the ones actually doing it day in, day out at bedside. So I needed to have their buy-in. It didn't really matter what I felt it should look like. It mattered what the nurses would do and how they wanted it to look for the ease of their workflow. So I'd have to say the key stakeholders are really to get 
your nurses involved, especially something like this. You would need some bedside nurses involved. And then obviously the support of your physician leadership. You also talked in your paper, Dr. Taylor, that in your study, the units were managed by intensivists, and I believe you're the dietitian that was taking care of all those patients. How do you think that feed me protocol would work in a setting where maybe there's multiple physicians or multiple dietitians who might be managing the patients in those units? Well, that's a really good question. I have some of that here because I have a new physician every single week. They switch over every single week. And since I've started this feed me protocol, we've actually grown to one and a half dietitians covering the unit. So I do have another dietitian in here. But what we really did is we standardized care. By coming up with a protocol that's at bedside, that's readily available, that we put into the hands of the bedside nurses and more nurse-driven, we basically standardized care. So we made it so it doesn't really matter how many different physicians or RDs that you have coming through. If you have a core set of nurses, and even if you have new nurses coming in, because we have a high turnover, new nurses coming in all the time, if they look at their standardized protocols for that unit, it actually helps the care remain the same, I think. So I'm a proponent of protocolized care to an extent. I don't think it replaces clinical judgment. But I think by having a protocol that really you can overcome the fact that you may have different people coming and going. I think you alluded to this earlier that sometimes when you do a quality improvement project or a study, sometimes things aren't exactly what you anticipated. Did you have any kind of surprising results that you weren't expecting when you did this project? Yeah, let me think. We did have some surprising results. Well, we had the issue with the high blood sugars, where I probably should have saw that coming. I just didn't think that through, so we had to modify it a bit. And basically, that means if, you know, if I have someone on insulin drip at four units an hour, and that works for their typical tube feeding rate, but because of the feed me, we're catching up for lost time, we double that tube feeding rate. Obviously, their insulin drip also doubles, but then at 7 a.m. for our protocol, we reset back to the prescribed rate. We also had to reset back at that time the insulin drip at that prescribed rate so we wouldn't have an issue of hypoglycemia. We did not have anyone go hypoglycemic because my nurses were on top of it and figured that out for me and said this would be a problem. So that was good. The other thing was I thought that I would have more issues, quite frankly, with maybe gastric residual volumes or diarrhea when we up this rate, and I really didn't. We really did not have a whole lot of differences. We had a, maybe a little bit more diarrhea, but not really anything greatly significant. So it was actually, I was kind of surprised how well it was tolerated. Now, I will say that we capped off the top of our rates of infusion at 120 an hour. We use a lot of small bowel feeding tubes in my unit, so we didn't want to kind of stress that too much, and we had, like I said, a lot of GI surgery patients. So we did cap the highest that they would infuse that tube feeding at 120 an hour. So that may have been why we didn't have a lot of those issues. But I was also surprised how easily the nurses took to being able to follow the protocol. So that was a pleasant surprise. The other surprise I had in the protocol is it's written in the 
manuscript, we have a lot of some of our main barriers to feeding are actually this dreaded MPO at midnight for a return to the OR the next day. So we have a lot of patients back and forth to the OR. And we tried when they get the MPO at midnight order to up the tube feeding rate at that point. So we pre-feed a little heavier, and then when they come back, we up the rate when they came back from the OR. And that didn't work as well as expected. We didn't always have our nurses remembering to up the rate before they went MPO at midnight. So that's been a challenge that we're still working on overcoming. I found that that everyone's getting the second part of it right by upping the feeds after they come back. But it's a, you know it's still a work in progress. I say we keep going. That's the thing about quality, continuous improvement. You continue to improve. So that was one of the things I found as we instituted the protocol. Dr. Taylor, I found this really fascinating, and I think it's very applicable in our everyday clinical care. Before we conclude our conversation, is there anything else you want to share with our audience? I would say the main thing I just want all the dietitians to know out there is you can make a difference as part of that multidisciplinary team. We are being inundated this past decade, I'd say for sure, of different nutritional studies that have been coming out that have been published in NCP and JPEN that are showing us evidence for best practice, and that's really what we want to move toward. And so we need to take a look at what we're doing in our own backyard. So here I'm advocating for evidence-based practice, and I took a look, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're doing terrible, 37%. Yeeks. So I think we need to look at what we're doing in our own unit, find out our own problems, and realize that you really can make a difference as part of that team and to overcome some of the barriers that we face to feeding our patients. Well, thank you, Dr. Taylor, for sharing your experiences today with our listeners. I invite all of our readers to find out more about the Feed Me protocol in the October 2014 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice.